on top of the entrance to the Pearl Station. Well, that's quite a coincidence. Don't mistake coincidence for fate. Hello, everyone. Matt here, and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits to the series as a whole. Today, I'll be covering episode 305, entitled The Cost of Living. This is the 54th hour of the series, and there are 67 to go. With that, let's jump straight into the Wikipedia summary for the episode. In flashbacks, shortly after the death of his brother Yemi, Echo is driven back to the village and enters the church. Sometime later, after Echo has become established in his new role as a priest, he is confronted by militiamen, who had a deal with Yemi to get 80% of the clinic's vaccines. Echo soon develops a plan to sell the vaccine on the black market before he leaves the country that coming weekend. As the militiamen learn of Echo's deal, they attack him inside the church, but end up getting killed by Echo. The villagers respond by closing the church, as they felt it was desecrated. Echo is told Yemi was aware of the vaccine deal and that Echo now owes his brother one church. Elsewhere, on Hydra Island... Jack is invited by Ben Linus to attend the memorial service being held for the dead Colleen. On the way, Jack asks about the symptoms of Ben's spinal tumor, particularly pointing out that it will kill him. Ben professes to not know what Jack is talking about. The following day, Ben tells Jack that they had a perfect plan to convince Jack to operate on Ben's spine, but it failed when Jack saw the x-rays. Afterward, Juliet brings to Jack's cell a movie, which consists of Juliet speaking through cue cards. As Juliet discusses on how the surgery will proceed, on the tape she tells Jack that Ben is a liar and very dangerous, and thus the surgery should be intentionally botched to kill Ben, but that she will protect Jack if he does. On the rest of the island, a delirious Echo has a vision of his brother Yemi, holding a cigarette lighter, who tells that if Echo is ready to confess, he knows where to find Yemi. Afterwards, Echo's shelter catches fire, and Echo is rescued by Charlie and Hurley. As Locke arrives to ask what happened, Echo has vanished. The next morning, Locke suggests Desmond visit the Pearl Station. Joined by Charlie, Saeed, Nikki, and Paolo, the group finds Echo on their way to the Pearl. Upon arrival, Echo does not find Yemi's body in the airplane atop the entrance, and decides to remain outside while Locke and the others climb into the hatch. Inside the hatch, Saeed tinkers first with the communication lines, and following a suggestion from Nikki, the monitors. Then one of the screens gets a live video feed of what appears to be another hatch, revealing a man with an eye patch. Meanwhile, outside the Pearl, Echo sees Yemi and follows him into an opening of the jungle, where Yemi tells him it is time for Echo to confess his sins. Echo says that he has not sinned, having not chosen the life he was given and the Echo had only done what he needed to survive. An angry-looking Yemi replies, You speak to me as if I were your brother, as he retreats into the jungle. Echo follows, then finds the smoke monster. An arm of smoke reaches out, grabs Echo, and smashes him into the trees before slamming him on the ground. Locke and the others rush out, 
to find a bloodied Echo lying motionless on the ground. Echo breathes his dying words into Locke's ear, and when Saeed asks what Echo said, Locke replies, he said, where next? And with that happy ending there, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. The episode opens in an Echo flashback, as evidenced by what to my eyes look like a red tint. Lostpedia calls it the yellow tint. Either way, there's a a tint given to these scenes in order to uh, mimic, we are told, uh, the visual effect uh, of some sort uh, of Africa, or we're supposed, to, we're supposed to look as though it's Africa somehow. Uh, we see Echo, young Echo, apparently doing the right thing. He's stealing in order to feed his brother. Not particularly knowing how hungry Yemi was, we're kind of nonetheless sympathetic to Echo being the good, protective brother. And then amidst the nun yelling, confess, confess, Echo ironically appears unwilling to do just that, which uh, I dare say is a bit of foreshadowing for uh, the end of the episode where Echo is unwilling to confess uh, his sins to the smoke monster or smoke monster Yemi, which I suppose is the same thing. But uh, just as here we see young Echo, oh, I don't want to say splitting the hairs, but he's not, he's not. Uh, looking at things in a black and white world, to use those ironic uh, words, to him it's not uh, it's not black or white. There are shades of gray, and he's operating within the notion that there are shades of gray, and that if you need to steal to feed your hungry brother, that that is not a confessible sin. At any rate, the flashback ends, and Island Echo is still quite ill and unresponsive. Said has returned, presumably with Sun and Jin too, although we don't see them. Uh, Said is concerned for Echo, and the dialogue rather clearly reveals that Locke has not seen Said. You know, hey, hey, they've just returned. That's what they're trying to tell us. And uh, that it's been two days since episode 303 and all the fun of the polar bear cave. Having the tent to himself at that point, Echo then dreams a little dream. And conveniently, it's his flashback story from season two. This feels a tad cheap. He's essentially flashing back to his own flashback. Um, now, I mean, it it becomes worth it insofar as, um, you know, we see Yemi right away, uh, or, well, yes, right as soon as it ends, we see Yemi. The flip side, though, is, I mean, we never see footage, you know, past footage, unless it's a previously unlost. Uh, the only possible exception that I can think of would be, you know, kind of the, the most artful of crisscross moments. Uh, lock banging on the hatch. Uh, I, I believe that's recycled footage, uh, I, or that footage gets recycled uh, when it's the Desmond flashback of Desmond about to commit suicide and then realizing there's someone out there. Uh, same thing with uh, Jack and company approaching the line that they're not supposed to cross and uh, Tom Friendly saying, this is our island. And when we see the, uh, the bit from Alex kind of behind the brush uh, with Michael, um, yeah, I mean, that's obviously not the Alex part is a reuse, but the, uh, the, you know, the rest of that conversation, they reuse some of it, but that's part of the narrative where it's simply saying, look, there's this other thing going on there and look how seamlessly it blends in. Look what, you know, intelligent writers and producers and editors we are. So it's just strange. It's strange that there's this echo reuse flashback thing at any rate. At any rate, Echo wakes up to see Yemi. And, you know, kudos to the actor who plays Yemi. 
you really get the sense that this is a harder, more direct Yemi. It's not kind of the calm, the, the calm kind priest. This is somebody who has, I'm going to say some fire in his eyes, but it's almost like he has a steely heart. And uh, which, of course, makes sense because first time viewers might mistake Yemi as a hallucination. But then how would Yemi's lighter burn down the tent? Hint, it's the smoke monster. The smoke monster has returned. Um, I think that, uh, you know, for first time viewers, that's not entirely clear at this point. Perhaps it was a theory out there that the smoke monster could take different forms. But you'll see as we discuss further with uh, with Yemi here that uh, there's this internally consistent way that the smoke monster takes the forms of, of other people. Anyhow, it's uh, at that point we kind of move towards a cute little hook to end the teaser act. It's a barely conscious Echo who's pulled from the tent, mumbles a bit about, my brother, my brother. But when Locke arrives, Echo is gone. And that's what we... Uh, that's what takes us to the title card. After the title card, Jack is doing pull-ups in his under-the-sea prison. I kind of like to imagine now, in part because I'm a bit tired of seeing that set after five episodes, and I know it's it's time in the show is waning greatly, but uh, I kind of like to imagine that Jack always has, you know, the song Under the Sea from Little Mermaid that is constantly playing in his cell. Um, I, I don't know why. I just kind of like that idea. Anyhow... Uh, ben enters his uh, enters the room. Ben is dressed in white and asks Jack to put on similar clothes so that they can go for a walk. Uh, and there's this kind of nice touch in the dialogue there that uh, Jack supposes that if he says no, he'll be going anyway with a bag over his head. So eh, it's probably just easier to say to say yes and, and play along. And Ben kind of doesn't quite agree, but Ben is all but agreeing and saying, you know, yep, you can do it the easy way or the hard way, but the result is what the result will be. And then at that point, Jack the Jerk, he he shows up on our side. He jerkifies Ben, and Jack shows his medical wisdom. Does it hurt? Sorry. Your neck, does it hurt? Any numbness in your fingers and toes, like pins and needles when your foot falls asleep, but permanent. Why are you asking me these questions, Chad? Because, Ben, you have a tumor on your spine, an aggressive tumor, that is going to kill you. I don't know when those x-rays were taken that I saw, but unless they were very recent, not going to be taking walks much longer. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. My mistake, then. I'm ready whenever you are. It is great, isn't it, to see Jack just laying it out all on the table, especially for a show that usually would draw out such a mystery for 10 or 20 episodes. Though to be fair, the mystery of why Ben was caught, what he was doing on that side of the island, what he was doing so close to uh, Rousseau and our survivors, that mystery does stretch back probably close to 20 episodes at this point. So it's not without some longevity, but certainly the notion of 
why do they have Jack versus the other two? What's the deal with that? Um, is much more recent. It's five or six episodes, you know, if you want to include uh, the, the end of last season. But uh, just great to see Jack just kind of throwing it all in, in, in Ben's face. Uh, with that, Ben takes Jack to Colleen's funeral. There's kind of this Eastern flair of the, the clothing. And it, to me, it was kind of offset by the strange kind of 1950s music that's playing. Um, I did wonder why Ben brought Jack uh, to the funeral. Perhaps it is this attempt to, uh, to kind of have Jack feel included in the community. Uh, and if so, you know, fine, so be it. It does seem maybe it's just a tad gimmicky. It's just a tad, you know, too convenient that then Jack is able to see the others, you know, kind of, you know, behind the curtain as they really act. Um, and then it's also an opportunity for uh, Ben to ask Juliet why she showed Jack the x-rays, thus confirming to us that it's Ben. At that point, you know, Juliet says, you know, I didn't, I didn't tell him uh, that it was you. However, I guess the look on your face told him that it was you, or you know, those kind of words to that effect. And it's like, well, I don't know that that is entirely true. I mean, Ben, I mean, Jack has made this supposition fine, but I don't know that, I don't know that, I don't know that Juliet can say, well, congrats, Ben, now you've confirmed it to Jack. I think, if anything, it's congrats, Ben, now you've confirmed it to the audience. That's actually what that bit of dialogue means. Anyhow, with that, we cut to Survivor Beach, where they're down to business. Locke and Desmond and Saeed are hatching a plot to uh, go to another hatch, communicate with other hatch, other other hatches, and somehow get Kate, Jack, and Sawyer back. I'll admit I wasn't entirely clear as to how using other hatch terminals would get them back um maybe it's glossed over very quickly maybe it's just said plainly and i missed the five seconds where they said it but it just seemed a little a little vague to me um the scene ends though with Locke putting together my brother my brother as referring to yemi which is no surprise to us but also yemi's resting spot the pearl hatch so then at that point, that's that's kind of a nice little bit of packaging there. That here Echo's hurt, you know, sees the vision of his brother, my brother, my brother. He's going to go see him. That also coincidentally is uh, where everyone else is headed because they need a hatch to go to. Now on the flip side, if you want to call that a bit heavy-handed, which is a, a phrase I'm going to be using throughout this podcast for this episode, which is not a bad episode, by the way, but there are moments where it's just like, all right, we're not morons. You don't need to really spell it out with every word and every syllable and every, you know, letter. But, um, you know, if you want to call it heavy-handed that coincidentally you have an echo story here and you have a get-everybody-back story over there and we're just going to combine the two uh, into a common location of the pearl, eh, you know, what do you want? It's all constructed fiction. Uh, it's, you know... Whatever. The story moves uh, to barely coherent Echo in the Jungle passing out, and that's just in time for a flashback. We flashback to Priest Echo right after being mistaken for a priest, you know, at the very end of, uh, at the end of, uh, you know, that first Echo flashback. The army returns him and uh, very kindly says to him, You're home, father. 
really showing us that he's mistaken for a priest and back in his original village. There's the heavy hand in this, you see. We just couldn't figure out. We just saw the previous on Lost where it says, you know, are you all right, father? And gets, you know, they get into a uh, an army uh, truck. And then we see an army truck returning the, uh, you know, the collared echo, you know, wearing that, that priest's collar. And uh, I guess the show doesn't trust us enough to have figured that one out ourselves. Anyhow, mom and her altar boy son mistake echo essentially um, for the purposes of exposition. That's why they're mistaking him. Are you replacing Father Yemi? Yes. Are you going to London? Because Father Yemi was going to London. Yes. So now it's really clear. You know, Echo has taken over the mantle of the priesthood, and there's also this kind of exit hatch of he's going to be going to London. All right, hopefully we're all clear on that, because I think that's the function of the scene. Yeah, there's a little bit to introduce the mom, and there's a little bit to introduce uh, the altar boy, but, you know, it's just pedantic exposition, though. It really is there just to stitch together the first Echo flashback, how the drug lord became a priest, and then how he started to travel abroad, which I believe was the uh, the second flashback. Anyhow, luckily, it's much more interesting back on the island. As Echo recovers, there's some wonderful shaky cam footage of Echo waking up, and the smoke monster kind of peeper smoke ticking by. Um, it's impressive. It's impressive because, you know, to do special effects, ideally you have a static screen, where, you know, you kind of don't need to match the movement of the camera to the movement of the uh, uh, of the special effects. They would have had to do that here with, with the, the shaky cam footage, unless there's some sort of, I don't know, motion control computer dealio on the camera, which uh, I'm sure if you, you know, if you're a James Cameron or a Peter Jackson or Steven Spielberg, I'm sure that you could have that built no problem with kind of advanced uh, warning and advanced testing and that kind of thing, but... I don't think such a thing is kind of commercially available for television production. So probably it's a case of they shot the shaky cam footage. Then at some point, whether it was pre-production or post-production, somebody said, hey, let's have this little smoke peeper go by there. And the effects person, in addition to needing to create, you know, create the smoke, would have had to kind of track the movement of the uh, of the footage frame by frame and you know which i imagine is a rather tedious thing uh particularly you know the the show kind of perpetually in the uh in a in a rush for uh you know reaching the air date and all of that so anyhow it's a couple of seconds that you see that particular example of the smoke but it's it's really nice nonetheless it's a nice little you know there it is in the background and it's integrated in the scene nicely and anyhow, the uh, the presumed hallucinations continue. Uh, scary thug types start attacking Echo. Then the altar boy is there saying, confess, confess. And I personally would call that more of the smoke monster. Now, to be fair, have we ever seen the smoke monster take more than one form at a time? Off the top of my head, I would say no. So if you want to say, therefore, it's not the smoke monster, fine. Then this this could actually be... A hallucination, or parts of it could be a hallucination. He sees one guy and imagines two others, or he sees the thugs, but the smoke monster actually appears uh, as the altar boy. There's kind of, you know, luckily he he is hallucinating, just as um, 
some of the other questionable stuff that we've seen, um, you know, referring back to uh, uh, the uh, Locke's kind of paced hallucination uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, Boone's paced hallucination from season one. You know, these, there's enough wiggle room to say, well, he actually didn't see it. And if there are coincidences to, to real life, so be it. Anyhow, with that, the story moves back on the beach. Locke is loudly announcing to everyone that there will be an expedition to the Pearl Station, and all are welcome. Hurley, rather heavy-handedly, again, says that Jack wouldn't do that. Jack would go alone, or Jack would take Saeed and Kate. Locke says, wait for it. I'm not Jack. Jack's not here. Hooray, hippie commune. It worked out so well in the Locke flashback that we're communizing again. Of course, you might hopefully understand my sarcasm there, as Locke's flashback commune did in fact not work out too well for him, uh, and frankly for those in it. But, um, eh, you know, at least to be fair, Locke has always been, uh, you know, the Jeffersonian of the group, the one to say, let each man and each woman uh, depend on his or her own... um, Oh, sense of honor, sense of capability, sense of involvement. Let each person be involved as much as they would like to. Let's trust the group. Let's trust democracy. Whereas, uh, you know, Jack is kind of more of the the Adams type to say, well, no, it, it must be uh, the best and the brightest and, and the elite to rule. Uh, and kind of, you know, Jack rather uh, untrustworthy of the masses. So, and anyhow, with the masses joining us, who announces that they're going to join in on this expedition? Well, let's see. We have, in the scene, we have regulars who are familiar to us. We have extras who are completely unfamiliar. And Nikki and Paolo. So who's going to join them? Who announces it right in that scene? Nikki. Let the shoehorning begin. Next, there's an interesting scene between Locke and Desmond. It certainly feels profound. It's Desmond asking about Locke's motives, notation of coincidences, Locke capping the scene with, don't mistake fate for coincidence. I actually can't decide whether it actually is profound or if it's just simply exposition spelling out what's going on. And I'd say, too, if you can't tell the difference, then it just might be an example of weak writing. You know, if you can't tell whether it's exposition or brilliant, then it Either way, it's it's has a tinge of weakness to it. Uh, the story moves on to Echo stumbling and fumbling into a stream. He takes a loud slurpy drink, uh, which lets us transition to the flashback where Echo is washing his hands with loud slurpy water. This time it's holy water, which the altar boy says isn't supposed to be used for that, by the way. Uh, with that, the baddies appear to shake down the church's vaccine supply. Or I guess it's not the church, right? It actually is the clinic, but coincidentally, they show up at the church. Oh, I guess because, yeah, there is the there is the uh, the church connection. I guess it's the Red Cross giving the vaccine, and it, it, I guess perhaps it's directly to the church, or it's there's kind of a church, clinic, Red Cross, you know, three-sided triangle there. So I guess that's why. Um and, you know, the, the baddies make the claim that Yemi was aware of this deal where the bad guys get 80% of the vaccine and the clinic is uh, able to keep a whopping 20%. Uh, the flashback ends, by the way, with Echo still drinking uh, in the stream. And at that point, there's then is just a great 
wonderful shot of Echo's face being reflected in the stream, along with Smokey coming up behind him. Echo turns, stick in hand, ready to fight, and it appears he scares Smokey away. It's a fantastic, mysterious moment. And just after that, Locke arrives. So the question is, did Locke's presence shoo Smokey away, or was it Echo's preparedness to fight? I guess I don't exactly know one way or the other. Certainly, I think... Well, let's see. The smoke monster certainly has had a run-in with Locke and others uh, in, in its evil smoke form before. We'll learn later in the episode that when Locke first saw it, it was uh, in the form of kind of a white shining light. So certainly being in smoke monster form, uh, the man in black can't be seen by Locke. Otherwise, Locke will say, look, that's, that's badness. But uh, I kind of like, too, that that there's this recruitment attempt that that it's trying you know that man in black is trying to recruit echo is trying to figure out if he is malleable if he does have because clearly he has good in his heart and bad in his heart like everyone else and um i think those who have enough bad uh can go play for team smoke monster and um maybe he's creeping up behind just to do another one of those brain scans i don't know but Anyhow, with that, Locke says hello, and uh, Locke and company having met up with Echo, apparently that's the hook with which we end the act. So we do. After the commercial break, Jack is back in his under-the-sea cave, where Juliet delivers an amazing cheeseburger. There's lovely jokes about all she's done to make it. She's making jokes about, you know, she killed the cow and chopped the beef, and then she made the bun, and you know, created the cheese and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Jack continues the jokes with her. You know, he's kind of dishing them back to her as she gives them to him. And I'm sure that that's meant to show their growing rapport. You know, bow, chicka, wow, wow. But also, to be fair, it's a rapport that Juliet is going to uh, to try and capitalize on before the end of the episode. Uh, with that, Ben interrupts. He sends Juliet out, and he just starts some wonderful monologuing revealing the master plan for Jack. We had such a wonderful plan to break you, Jack. Break me? Wear you down till you were convinced we weren't your enemies. Get you to trust us. And then, of course, we'd lead you to believe that you were choosing to do whatever we asked you to do. All of this, of course, assumed that you would get invested. Invested in what? Has it not occurred to you that Juliet bears a striking resemblance to your ex-wife? Why are you telling me this? I'm telling you this, Jack, because my wonderful plan got shot to sunshine when you saw my damned x-rays and figured out I was dying. All of this. You brought me here to operate on you. You, you want me to save your life. No, I want you to want to save my life. But we're beyond that now, so. All I can ask is that you think about it. It's so revealing on Ben's part, isn't it? For him to 
I'd be fessing up like that. And I suppose he's just figured out that if uh, if lies can't serve you any farther, then you have to go with your last option, which is the truth. Um, then that's followed up, uh, perhaps for effect, perhaps just more of this heavy-handed exposition of uh, Jack spelling it out by saying, you want me to operate on you. At any rate, the clip continues. Do you believe in God, Jack? Do you? Two days after I found out I had a fatal tumor on my spine, a spinal surgeon fell out of the sky. And if that's not proof of God, I don't know what is. It's interesting for the show to be discussing God. Uh, They really haven't gone that route very much, although I suppose if Echo the Priest is in your flashback, now's the time to do it, right? Uh, The flip side is that perhaps Ben is playing to Jack's ego by suggesting that Jack is uh, indeed, uh, you know, a God-given surgeon, that Jack really has been placed here at this place by the hand of God in order to help. What's interesting to note, too, is the story's now at the halfway point, and it's feeling very, very full. Uh, There's not any of the leanness of storytelling from last week. Uh, This week we have an interesting, perhaps not amazing, but an interesting flashback story, a really solid Echo Lock Desmond story, fun and zippy uh, Jack and Ben scenes. It's just, you know, it's all working nicely. Anyhow, with that, the story moves to a quick moment with grumpy Echo telling Locke at knife point not to mention Yeti's name. <laughs> Yeti. There we go. Good job, spellcheck. Not to mention Yemi's name. Uh, then a flashback to the good father Echo doing some snooping around as to the vaccine black market, down to going undercover as Mr. Style, prepared to sell vaccine. Now, I will say, I wasn't sure uh, if he was really looking to sell it, or if he was doing that to kind of raise the attention of the of the bad guys of the uh, the local militia, uh, in part because you know he's leaving in a couple of days for London. Does he want to rid the village of them before he leaves, uh, knowing that he can make a clean getaway? Um, is it as the Wikipedia summary suggests that he he really was trying to sell it that the bad guy has returned? Uh, you know, I suppose it's up to debate. I kind of like that it's debatable. Um, you know, what to what degree is he good and to what degree is he bad? This is something that has uh, you know been a question about Echo uh, for his entire run on the show. Anyhow, the flashback ends with a return to the Pearl Hatch. Uh, the heavy-handed exposition continues. Paolo uh, asks what Echo is looking for. And uh, Nikki tells him his brother's body is in that plane. For the record, maybe I was typing during previous scenes, but I honestly did not know that Paolo was going along for this journey until that bit of dialogue and the ensuing shots of them going to the Pearl. So, um, I don't know what's up with that. I doubt it's my error. I know that when uh, Nikki first expressed an interest, it was you know she said she'll go, and Paolo didn't seem in a rush to go, but. Anyhow, nearby to them, Echo and Locke uh, discuss visions of smoke monsters. What exactly did you see back there? I saw it once, you know. What did you see? I saw a very bright light. It was beautiful. 
That is not what I saw. It's a nice touch that Smokey would take an inspiring form for that coercible Mr. Locke. Uh, the story moves into the plane where Echo is unable to find Yemi's body. Uh, that suggests some sort of reanimation for first-time viewers. Or, let's not forget, the idea that Smokey takes the bodies of those like Yemi and Christian Shepard, hides the bodies in order to better hide his own tracks. Heck, think ahead to when Smokey has taken Locke's form. The whole plan gets ruined because the good guys have the real Mr. Locke's body. So, little uh, little bit to chew over there. Uh, with that, we have a flashback scene of the crucifix, then a serious-looking echo, interrupted by the returning bad guys. As the scene unfolds into a fight, we realize that they're the same baddies that attacked him in the forest, or at least appeared to. You do not know who I am. What follows is a great scene. It's slightly in slow motion as the bloody echo exits the church, as the community, including the altar boy and his mother, look on in horror. I'll add to the echo's eyes almost look a little bloody. I'm not sure if it's the, the tint used for these scenes. Uh, if perhaps it's just makeup, whether intentional or unintentional, in his eye, but the white of his eye almost looks a little, a little, uh, you know, blood hazed. Yeah, it's just a fantastic look. Anyhow, with that, the flashback is over, and we're in the pearl hatch with Nikki watching the orientation video while characters that we really care about, Lock, Echo, and Desmond, fiddle with the wires. Then Nikki does something useful. Hooray! It's heavy-handed, no surprise given the episode, as she asks what the other TVs are for, then references other stations, then rewinds the tape. Where the activities of participants in Dharma Initiative projects can be observed and recorded. Projects, more than one. So maybe some of these TVs are connected to the other hatches. Well, I'm suddenly feeling very stupid. Perhaps I could patch in one of the other feeds, see if we can get another picture. We also have Paolo contribute greatly to the scene. The toilet still works. Fine, I suppose that has some use tying into their flashback, but then... Anything yet? Nothing. What about now? John? Yeah, we got something. The something is that other station feeds are now up and working. What is it? That's a good question. Luckily, Paolo tells us. Hmm, those are computers. Great. That's what you're looking for. Now we can get out of here. We also see... <laughs> the rather shocking reveal of Patchy, a.k.a. Mikhail seeing that they're watching and turning that camera away. I guess he'll be expecting us. With that, the story moves back to Jack, with Juliet apologizing for everything, including wanting to put in the movie version of To Kill a Mockingbird. It, of course, starts to get very interesting when that isn't the movie. It's Juliet at home with cue cards saying, ignore everything I'm saying. 
Ben is a liar. He's very dangerous. Some of us want change, but it has to look like an accident. This is masterful storytelling here. Juliet speaking the reasons why gentle Ben should be saved, while her cue cards, which are of course unseen by Ben's camera, giving Jack a ticket out of everything by killing Ben. The act ends with Juliet saying out loud, think about it, which is to say, think about killing him. After the act break, flashback echoes leaving Africa, having secured the vaccine, but he's reminded that others will replace the baddies. The townspeople are boarding up the church as it's been dirtied by the deaths he caused in there. Echo is told that he owes Yemi one church, which apparently is supposed to resonate with the fact that Echo starts to build a church but never finishes it, and at this point has stopped building it. So I'm not quite sure what to make of that there. I guess that's why he started to build the church, but it doesn't quite explain why he never, never finished it. Anyhow, back on the island, Echo is coincidentally the only one not in the pearl hatch, and Smoky Yemi appears uh, just long enough to disappear into the forest, further separating Echo from the group, because, of course, Echo goes running after him. Echo and Smoky Yemi speak in a clearing. Yemi asks if Echo is ready. Echo says yes, and before answering, Echo takes out the cross that both brothers have worn. It's interesting to remember, by the way, that Smokey is from what essentially were pre-Christian times. Perhaps he's wondering why Echo has a necklace with a lowercase t on it, for all we know. Anyhow, Echo's confession is ultimately not a confession, but rather an explanation of doing what needed to be done in a world of shades of gray, which of course is not the thing to say to the man in black. You speak to me as if I were your brother. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? This, of course, is a sneering reminder that evil takes many forms, and unlost is generally the same evil. And it's only a handful of moments before that evil then returns, this time in full force. Echo's beating is a savage one. For all that can be said about the actor, it's a vicious, heartbreaking act done upon the audience to see him killed so brutally. Blood is my shepherd. I shall not want. so fitting that it is Locke who finds Echo first, his great rival, his great match, the person who Locke would have shared so much screen time with had the actor not wanted to leave. It's okay. It's okay. We have a quick flashback moment of Yemi and Echo in their childhood. 
a touching reminder of the origins of this beloved character who left us far too soon. Giacchino then does his thing, just mirroring our emotion so perfectly. With that, we have the final moments of Echo. And he's gone, this wonderful, wonderful character. But of course, no sense ending on a truly sad note when loss can put a little shiver down your spine right here at the end. What did he say, John? He said, we're next. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more kind of Giacchino oomph there at the end. Uh, you know, the swirling, screeching strings, you know, giving us an extra shiver. But perhaps it's just the case that the episode didn't have five seconds to spare to do that. It's an awfully jam-packed episode. And we've taken the moment to kind of mourn the passing of a, of a beloved character. Can they then also sacrifice the time to you know, give us that, that shiver moment. I would have liked it if yes. Certainly we'll see in a, in a bit that there were some deleted scenes for this episode that didn't make it that would have been fabulous to be in there. So all the more, uh, all the more evidence why uh, they indeed did not have those couple of sections, uh, seconds rather, in uh, what was a good, almost great episode. And indeed, let's take a look at Lostpedia. Uh, they say that this is the first episode since Do No Harm. 34 episodes previous to feature the death of a male main character. Every main character killed since Boone has been female. So I don't know if you want to read into some kind of, you know, anti-female gist there, although certainly Anne Lucia was always going to make her exit for, you know, at some point in season two. Um, the decision to kill off Libby was because she was so beloved and that it would hurt us in a way that the death of Anne Lucia would not. So, it is what it is, I suppose. Now, here's here are the two bits, the two deleted scenes where I read this and I said, why couldn't they have put these back in for the DVD digital release? Probably because it's more work. Probably because since they're releasing the episodes, uh, you know, season by season, it's you know been digitized already and it's just tons of extra work to do this. But listen to this. First, I admit, maybe you didn't need this first scene back, although it would have helped the second one. But first... A deleted scene features Sawyer and Kate breaking rocks during their time on Hydra Island. Pickett comes to Sawyer and tells him that the only reason he is still alive is because Ben needs him alive. So now that would have been some neat shading in terms of, you know, a little hint as to why Sawyer and Kate are there. Which is to say they're there just to, you know, as part of the original plan to have Jack, you know, reject them and reject the survivors and go help out uh, Ben and do the surgery, etc. This next bit here, it's a shame that they did not mention it, not add this in the episode. A deleted scene shows Danny Pickett revealing the construction site's real purpose is that of a runway. That would have been fabulous because I feel like 
yes, the runway is mentioned in later seasons, uh, or, or perhaps it's later in this season, but, you know, yes, it gets mentioned. But part of the reason it gets mentioned is because we, you know, they know they're going to use it, and they know that this scene was cut. Had they included this in the in the original episode, I think it would have stuck a bit more. I think that when we're finally returning to that, uh, to that episode later on, or that episode, to that location later on, that of the runway, I think that it would have resonated uh, more. It would have been, you know, oh, that's the thing that, that's the thing that uh, Sawyer and uh, and Kate were working on. So, a little bit of a little bit of a missed opportunity there, but you know, I suppose they had to make it the best episode as uh, as possible. And uh, no, the road not taken. The road not taken. Anyhow, let's look ahead to next week's episode. Next week's episode is 306, entitled I Do. It is a Kate episode, and it is the end of that, uh, this kind of famous, infamous uh, first six episodes, which had appeared in the, uh, which had aired in the fall of 2006. Um, As I said before, these episodes are not uh, bad the way I remembered them. They're not upsetting the way I remembered them. Um... I remember feeling disappointed. Now, you know, is it a bit of a letdown perhaps from the tailies and orientation films and this sort of thing? Uh, yeah, but I mean, that's that's okay. What will really be interesting is, will be two things. It'll be, first of all, my experience of getting to the end of I Do, and I think there's the line, you know, run, Kate, run. Um that did not feel, you know, it was kind of billed as, these first six episodes, I think, were billed as not self-contained, of course, but kind of the first, you know, that they knew that this was going to happen. You're going to have six episodes in the fall and then all the rest. So I think that there was the expectation for there to be a sense of cohesion in the episodes that there really isn't. And I think going out on Run, Kate, Run... I think the hope was that in these six episodes, our heroes would be back at the beach. Um, now, none of this is going to be an issue uh, in in terms of my rewatch because at the end of one of three of six, run Kate, run. Well, what's going to happen next time? I want to watch Lost. It'll be three oh seven, not in Portland. So, it'll that. That also will be an interesting experience. Three oh seven, three oh eight, three oh nine, three ten. I remember it was with 310 where I said, because, you know, I was not, I remember distinctly not being happy with Not in Portland to the point where I said, maybe the show has gone downhill. I'll give it a month. So 307, 8, 9, 10. Um, certainly Stranger in a Strange Land there, 309. I think we can all agree, or at least mostly agree, that that's going to be the low point. But. Uh, I vaguely, you know, Trisha Tanaka is dead, 310. I remember that being, you know, good enough for me to say, I think the show is starting to get better. Um, and then certainly flashes before your eyes. I can't wait to rewatch. So it's going to be an interesting uh, experience this next, uh, let's say, what, five or six episodes uh, to get us, you know, from I Do, the beginning of I Do to the end of Trisha Tanaka is dead. Um certainly we are zipping along here so with that the episode is over the lostpedia stuff is over a couple of reminders if you'd like to uh 
say hello to me on Twitter. I'm looking back lost. If you'd like to uh, leave a message on the listener line, the number is 732-707-1815. You can email me look, uh, at lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. Leave a message on lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. And uh, hopefully you will continue to join me and some of my pals from phgeek.com over at the Alcatraz podcast by phgeek.com and find it on iTunes by searching for that mouthful or by heading over to alcatraz.podbean.com. We uh, will have some surprises hopefully in the next couple of weeks. We actually have, hopefully we'll be talking to uh, talking to a couple of someones from outside our little podcast. I'll just leave it at that. So check out Alcatraz, check out the podcast. Thank you as always for joining me here on Looking Back at Lost. And uh, with that, I will speak to you all again next week for 306 I Do. Take care, everybody, and bye-bye. <laughs>